another familiar story than that of Philip evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8, verses 25 through 40. I'm going to read that entire passage uh, this morning. And I'd like to ask Aaron Wells if you pray for the ministry of the word this morning. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 25. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And he arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and had, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join his chariot. And when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered that the chariot be stopped, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to bring us the good news of Jesus Christ having given himself to slaughter on our behalf in order to pay for our sins, and that it is no less miraculous a thing for you to bring us the good news and work faith in our hearts by your Holy Spirit than it was for you to have Philip uh, disappear out of nowhere. We pray that you would, uh, as the Ethiopian desired, that you would guide us uh, in the understanding of your word, that we may better understand it and that we may better um, know how it is that we shall live in light of this great salvation uh, that you have brought us, that we would not shrink back from it in unbelief, but press forward in confidence of, of your grace toward us. We pray for Chuck that you would fill him with your spirit, that he would speak by your spirit, that he would speak with right understanding and, and communicate that uh, to us as, as the blessing that we find on the Lord's day. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as Reformed believers, we do not believe in luck. 
We do not believe that things just happen uh, according to chance. Uh, we believe that all things are done according to providence, that all things fall out according to the will of God, but it does seem that some events are more providential than others, at least the way they're recorded in Scripture. Uh, this one in particular that we're looking at, in verse 26 we read, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Uh, we know from Paul's writings that it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth His Son. And Paul's own experience as he was wanting to travel into the north of Asia Minor, he was prevented by the Spirit. So we, we do know that, that there are times, as it were, when, when the will of God breaks into the course of history. We know that there are those even outside the biblical record who claim to have heard particular instructions from the Lord. We know that modern day Christians often use that. The Lord is telling me to do this. The Lord is telling me to do that. I think we ought to be cautious in that regard. It is very easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that that which we want to do is something that the Lord is telling us to do. Rather, I think James gives us good counsel when he says that as we plan our lives, we should say, if the Lord wills, we will go here, we will go there, we will buy, we will sell. Because divine providence is, even in the biblical record, not frequently out front. Normally we see the people of Scripture going about their lives, whether they are our average tent makers or whether they're kings of, of Israel. They're going about their lives according to the wisdom that God has given them. And many of them, not even that. General instruction of Scripture, I would say, is that we also seek that wisdom that is from above, and we seek that wisdom that comes from God's Word. So that when we say the Lord is telling me something, we are able to go to the Scriptures and see it written there. This event that we read about in, uh, in this passage in Acts chapter 8 has often been used by evangelists to show that God is interested in every single person. Now... The Arminian theologian is going to use a passage like this to say that, that whether your revival has many people or whether there's only a one person sitting out there in the pews, they are important to God and you must share the gospel. There's some truth to that. But is that what Luke means? Is that what the Holy Spirit means in preserving this divine appointment between Philip and this court official of the Ethiopian queen? Well, I don't think so. I think there's something deeper to that. I think there's something that comes to us from this passage when we understand the nature and the characteristics of the Old Covenant that we read about in the Old Testament. But so often modern Christianity has so divorced itself from the Old Testament that all meaning that we would derive from the New Testament has to come from the New Testament. But I was reminded last week during Sunday school, I think very wisely, that the writers of the New Testament only had the Old Testament at the time. And so we'll be looking at the, the value of the Old Testament here this morning as we look at this divine appointment between Philip the Evangelist and the Ethiopian eunuch. He was a court official, a high government officer of Queen Candace of the Ethiopians. That much Luke tells us. What history tells us, even to the modern era, is that the Ethiopian royalty of this day and later claimed descent from Solomon. 
through Sheba, who visited him. Now, we have no biblical proof of that, although we do know that Solomon had, indeed, many, many wives. And so the Ethiopians, even up to the, the most recent dictator, Haile Selassie, who many of you older people remember from the 1960s and 70s, he claimed to be a descendant of, Sol of Solomon through Queen Sheba. So there is a, a, a relationship between Israel and Ethiopia that actually remains to this day. And Ethiopia figures prominently in biblical prophecy, more prominently than, than we, would, we would think for a kind of a small African nation uh, south of Egypt. But was this event that Luke records simply a geographical extension of the gospel? Are we to glean from this that, that the gospel made it down into Africa through this eunuch? Because we will find the gospel and the church in the Nile region very early on in church history. As we will find it in Rome long before we know any apostle actually going there. And so we know that the people who were evangelized either in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost or perhaps here on the road to Gaza, this desert road, would take the gospel with them into new lands. But I think there's more to it. In fact, something very significant for, for the, the Jews, for example, who would be the primary target of the gospel during these early chapters of Acts. We've already seen Philip preaching to the Samaritans. And we saw that the Samaritans were an outcast people. They were half-breeds. They were despised by the Jews. Jews would have no dealings, John tells us, with the Samaritans. But we're taught that even the Samaritans can receive the Holy Spirit. Even the Samaritans can be brought on equal terms. And that is the reception of the Holy Spirit in with the Jews in this new covenant church. And now we're going to learn that not Ethiopians so much, but eunuchs can also be joined. You see, eunuchs under the Old Covenant were forbidden to participate in the assembly of the Lord. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Now no one who is emasculated shall enter the assembly of the Lord. The word there for assembly is the Hebrew word kahal, but in the Greek Old Testament, it is the word ekklesion, the ecclesia, which in the New Testament is translated church. Now, I don't agree with those who translate that word as church in the Old Testament. I think that blends things that are different. Nonetheless, we're talking about the called out ones, the ones who have been called out of the world to become the people of God through Jesus Christ, the assembly of the Lord, into which the eunuch was forbidden. He was not allowed to join. And so later on, when we read the eunuch say, what hinders me from being baptized? If you've ever wondered, well, what would hinder him? Why would he ask that question? Why didn't he just say, look, here's water. I would like to be baptized. But he says, what hinders me? Because he had just been to Jerusalem where he could not go any further than the court of the nations. Though he was apparently a proselyte to Judaism, and he went to Jerusalem, we are told, to worship, yet he was hindered from entering into the assembly of the Jews because he was a eunuch. And so now he hears the meaning of the gospel according to Isaiah, Isaiah 53. 
And he sees water and he asks, what hinders me? To which Philip answers, and this is such a profound answer because it applies to anything you can think of. He basically answers, nothing so long as you believe in Jesus Christ. The fact that you're a eunuch no longer matters. You are now welcome in the assembly of the Lord as it is being constituted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the fulfillment of another passage in Isaiah. In Isaiah 56, as Isaiah is beginning to speak of the new heaven and the new earth, the consummation of all that God had planned, he says this in Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Now we've already seen that. I'm going to pause we already saw that with the Samaritans. That the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans, as he had done upon the Jews at Pentecost, was the prevention of two separate churches being formed so early. A Jewish church and a Samaritan church. Because the Samaritans were foreigners. Even though they were half-breeds, they were viewed as foreigners. And so the Lord says, let not the foreigner say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. No, no, no. He will bring you together. Neither let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial. Not just in the court of the nations, but even in the most holy place. And a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. This was the promise to the eunuch who had for generations, though he had come to the understanding that Jehovah was the one true God, yet because of the physical emasculation in becoming a eunuch, he was not allowed to worship with God's people. He was kept on the outside. And now Philip, Luke, and the Holy Spirit are telling us that in Jesus Christ, that barrier has also been uh, torn down. We now have the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy where the eunuch can now freely come in Jesus Christ and will find himself to be a fruitful tree. It may be. That the Christianity that we found in Ethiopia so early in the church descended from this man, this eunuch. And like the barren woman who is told to rejoice for more will be her children than that of the woman who bears. This eunuch who considered himself a dry tree would have a multitude of sons and daughters in the Lord. That, that is the power of the gospel. So here's a test of your Bible knowledge. Could you preach the gospel using only the Old Testament? I mean, let's say the weirdest of things happens and you go to a hotel room and there's only the Old Testament there rather than just the New Testament because so many Christians don't think that you can preach the gospel from the Old Testament. We wonder how Peter did it, how Paul did it, how Philip did it. How Stephen defended the faith using only the Old Testament, when today we can't do that. And I, I think it would be a good test, instead of being able to necessarily name the books of the Bible, or you know the sword drills that we do, 
maybe we ought to train up our, in seminary perhaps, Tim, maybe I'll introduce this when next I meet Zach. Have each seminary candidate preach the gospel using only the Old Testament. Because it can be done. Very powerfully, it can be done. Paul says that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, which is really a trick because there wasn't even an Old Testament then. Jesus started with Moses and through the prophets preached the gospel to those two men on the road to Emmaus. And Philip overheard the eunuch reading from Isaiah 53, which is as, as evangelical a passage as can be found in the New Testament anywhere. As I mentioned earlier, it is the gospel according to Isaiah. He actually was reading verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53, where we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? This passage speaks of a vicarious death. It speaks of one who would suffer and who would die for the transgressions of his people. The Jewish nation has struggled throughout its history to answer the question that the eunuch asks Philip, of whom does the prophet speak? You see, the question of the Old Testament is the same as the question of the New Testament. Who do you say that I am? Of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of someone else? Because the eunuch knew enough to know that Isaiah was speaking of one who would die an atoning death. A death that he did not himself deserve, but one that was richly deserved by his own people. It would be vicarious. It would be sacrificial. But it would be a death. It would be the servant of the Lord Isaiah chapter 53 actually begins in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10. Excuse me, verse 13, where the Lord says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. It begins in a very, what's the word, glorious way. Speaking of the servant of the Lord in the highest possible terms. He will be exalted above all things. Almost like we read of Jesus in Philippians. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is of every name. But then the Lord is going to proceed beginning in verse 14 of Isaiah 52. With showing us what this servant had to go through before he attained that exaltation. The same way Paul talks about how... Jesus Christ did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself. He became nothing, taking on the form of a man. He lowered himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death and that of a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. You see, Philippians 2 parallels the gospel of Isaiah 53. You don't, you don't need Philippians. I praise God we have it. But if for some reason you are someplace and you only have the Old Testament, turn to Isaiah. Say, this is what God has ordained for the salvation of His people. And as we learn for the salvation of the world, 
that the servant of the Lord would suffer greatly even to the point of death. Onward in later in verse 9 of chapter 53, the Lord begins to speak of his grave is with the rich and yet he will see his days. He will be, he will be, um, I should read it. Why, why try to find a word? As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Jesus. Philip providentially is led to meet this Ethiopian official while he is reading a gospel passage from the Old Testament. He asks the question that we should ask anyone who is reading the Bible. Who? Of whom does the prophet speak? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a great teacher? Is he moral and a moral example? Or is he the sacrifice? The one that turns God's wrath against my sin away. The Jews, theologically, had a hard time with two particular themes that they find in the prophets. The one is the son of David, the royal king, whom they universally considered to be the Messiah. He would be the one who would throw off the yoke of Roman oppression and reestablish the kingdom of Israel upon David's throne in Jerusalem. The other was the suffering servant. Everything we read about him is lowly. He is oppressed. We do not even consider his visage. He was so marred. He was not to, one to look upon. He was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrow and well acquainted with grief. Not the kind of guy to lead a nationalistic rebellion. What the Jew had trouble understanding was that these two lines of prophecy would find fulfillment in the same man. And that it was as the suffering servant that he would become the exalted son of David. That he would not simply ride in victoriously at the head of, a, of an army, but rather he would come in through the grave, through the resurrection, through the defeat of Israel's true enemy, sin, death, and the devil. This, this is what the Old Testament teaches. And what is this? But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and that unless one stands in our place and carries the weight of our sin before us, atonement, then we must stand alone in the judgment. And as we read from the psalmist today, if God should count iniquity, who could stand? I mean, that is a meditative verse if ever there was one. There's no need to preach on that verse. Because every one of us can look inside our own heart and ask that question. And unless we are incredibly arrogant and so self-deceived as to think that we have no sin at all, we would have to all answer the same way. If God should count any iniquity at all, I couldn't stand. Well, the message of the Bible is that God will count every iniquity. We're told that we will give an account for every idle word spoken. Not the least sin will be ignored. But every single transgression, even if we lived only long enough to commit one, 
or even if we didn't live even that long, but rather carried with us the sin of our father Adam, it will be counted against us. And so praise be to God that he counted it against his son instead. That his, our sin, as the prophet says, our transgression was laid upon him. And so no, now in Christ, we stand in the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. We stand as one whose sins have been completely removed from his account and laid upon the shoulders of his substitute, Jesus. And the entire righteousness of God in Jesus has been credited to me, the sinner. That is grace. And that is the only hope that any man could have, any woman, any child, of standing before the Lord in the judgment. None of us will stand and say, well, I, I, I did this good. I wasn't as bad as my neighbor. I wasn't as bad as my sister or my brother. You know, the teachers like me. That, that's not going to work. No, we'll stand and say, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Nothing but the name of Jesus. He is the one, as Isaiah in the Old Testament said, He is the one who would be bruised for my iniquity and by His stripes I am healed. The Holy Spirit obviously was working in the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch and through the preaching that Philip brings, the man is regenerated. He comes to an understanding that God has acted fully and finally through His Son Jesus what must have been said? We don't have the words. We don't have the dialogue. But it's quite apparent by what the Ethiopian eunuch says that not only did Philip preach Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, but he also preached baptism. Because as soon as they saw water, the first response of the eunuch was, Look, water. What hinders me from being baptized? And so, that tells us a couple of things from this dialogue that we will find, I think, pretty consistently in the book of Acts to be essential to gospel preaching. A little side note. Not every preaching is gospel preaching. Some preaching is discipleship preaching. It's preaching theology or doctrine. It's preaching for the edification and the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. And that is necessary preaching. The problem with churches that only do gospel preaching is that their people never grow up. They're never fed meat. Okay? But gospel preaching will have some essential elements. First of all, it will leave every man, woman, and child lost in his or her sin. It will not alleviate the reality of sin. It will not say, oh, you were raised in a good home. You're, you're okay. You just need to do a little better. It will say, no, none have attained to the glory of God. All have fallen short. All are alike condemned under the wrath of God. Then it will say, but God has sent a substitute. He has sent a lamb, Jesus Christ, and he is the one in whom we will find salvation. There is no other name given in heaven and earth by which we must be saved. But then it will tell you to repent and be baptized. 
And that's an element that has been largely lost in the modern American church. Repent. We're not told to repent. We're told to give Jesus a try. We're told to choose Jesus. We're told that Jesus will give you what you need. We're not told to repent. In fact, one of the most famous preachers of the 20th century said that the worst thing you could do is tell someone they're a sinner because they won't come back. Well, they came in a sinner and they went out a sinner, so I didn't really change that, did I? By calling them one. It's not we who call others sinners. It's God in His Word. We simply diagnose the condition and provide the remedy. But somehow, mysteriously, baptism was central to Philip's message. As they were riding in that chariot, and we don't think they went all that far, or maybe they did, and that's why the Spirit had to get Philip back to where he needed to be, because the bus had already gone. But whatever Philip said, baptism was a part of it. And I think that teaches us that baptism is immediately associated with repentance and faith. And what that means is, again and again in Acts, when we see people coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Savior, what happens next? They are baptized. So I would say to you that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you ought to be baptized. That that is associated with the preaching of the gospel. John Calvin writes, we see that Christ had been preached to him in such a way that he knew that baptism is the sign of the new life in him. Baptism is a sign of the new life that was brought by the Holy Spirit the moment you believed in Jesus Christ. Baptism is not which, what saved you. We're going to see in a moment that that salvation must already be present. Because the second element of the gospel is that confession is a prerequisite to baptism. He asks, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip answers and said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is the good confession. This is the confession that Jesus himself did before Pilate when he acknowledged himself to be the Son of God. This is the confession that Paul speaks of. Hold fast the confession of your faith, as we read in Hebrews, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, folks, we have a little bit of a problem here. And if you look at your Bible at verse 37, many of your Bibles will have brackets around it with a little note in the margin that says, many ancient manuscripts do not contain this verse. In fact, some of your Bibles might not even have that verse. Because some of the oldest manuscripts that we have do not contain verse 37. Nonetheless, many old manuscripts, even dating back into the early 2nd century, do have that verse. So it wasn't added recently. Now since you have that in your Bibles, I think it is necessary to, to discuss the manuscript evidence regarding verse 37. Well, first of all, it's not a verse likely to be taken out of the original. Okay? So if it was in the original, it is unlikely that it was taken out unless by mistake. And nonetheless, it is, found in, it is not found in a number of ancient manuscripts. 
which means that the same mistake was made multiple times. Well, no. While it is a verse not likely to be taken out, it is a verse likely to be added to help explain the process to believers later on who don't know what it is that Philip said. For example, this might have been nothing more than Jewish proselyte baptism. Because when foreigners came to become a believer in the Jews' God, the God of Judaism, they were baptized. If they became fully Jewish, they were also circumcised. But, you know, later on, people might think, well, well what, what distinguished this baptism from Jewish proselyte baptism? Well, Philip saying what others will say before and after him. If you believe with all your heart, then you may be baptized. Paul distinguishes between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus Christ when he meets the disciples in Ephesus. And so we're, we're living in a time in the book of Acts where there's a transition from one set of beliefs or one manner of believing to another. And it's very important that things are clear. Also, if verse 37 is, is not in the Bible, it leaves the eunuch's question unanswered. In other words, he says, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip never answers the question. Now the answer implied is nothing because he then goes and baptizes him. But you can see that a later scribe, not much later, might add the answer to the eunuch's question because it becomes a confessional formula very early in the church. In, in order to join the church in the earliest days, you had to confess Jesus to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and you had to be baptized. So what we learn from this is that it's probably not original, but was added very, very early on. And it teaches that we find uniformly in the early church what was practiced during the apostolic age, and that is disciples were baptized. So... Where do we get infant baptism? And this is where this verse really comes into the debate about baptism within the church. The, ba the difference between infant baptism and believer's baptism. And of course, Baptists want to use this verse to say that, that obviously you must believe to be baptized. And Pado-Baptists will say, oh, but that verse wasn't in the original. Well, to which we respond, you, you may be right, but it was very early added. There is very, very old evidence that baptism was practically, in other words, in practice, central to the whole gospel conversion process. You believed and you were baptized. You see, the burden of proof is not upon the Baptists. I mean, we've been studying the history of Baptists in Sunday school, and, and we've seen how persecuted the Baptists have been and how hard they've had to work to prove what is right there in Scripture. While the rest of the Christian communion from Roman Catholic all the way through the Reformation all adhere to a practice of which there is no explicit command in Scripture nor example, the baptizing of infants. 
That is really the novelty, folks. Baptizing believers is not a novelty. We see it at Pentecost. We see it here on the road to Ethiopia. We'll see it in Philippi with the jailer. We're going to see it again and again and again. Repent and be baptized. The good confession of faith and then baptism. Why are we having such a hard time with this? The novelty in the church is infant baptism. And I want to read as we close. And I find my reading glasses. Those who defend pedo-baptism, the baptism of infants, have had to say and write some pretty remarkable things in order to justify their practice. Here is one of the most remarkable I've found written in, by John Calvin in his commentary on this passage. He says, But as it is certain that adults are engrafted by faith, so I say that children of the godly are born sons of the church and are numbered among the members of Christ from birth. Okay? Therefore, what you mean? Because God adopts us in the principle that he is also the father of our children. Therefore, and here's where it gets good. Even if faith is required in the case of adults, it is wrong to carry this over to children since the pattern with them is quite different. Can anyone really say amen to that? I mean, the only thing you can say to that is, OMG, did you really write that? Did you really say that, John Calvin? Did you really say that children are saved a different way than adults? Did you really say that any human being is saved apart from faith? Did you really say that people can become members of Christ by birth? Or by blood or by the will of man, which I think we're told is never the way? You see, at some point in time, you have to leave Scripture behind in order to defend the doctrine of paedo-baptism. And you have to say things that in a saner moment you would look at and say, I cannot believe I wrote that. This is one of the most unevangelistic things that John Calvin ever wrote in his life. There's a different way of salvation for children. Folks, the gospel is rather simple. I'm a sinner and I have no means in myself to bring myself to the good pleasure of God. I deserve His wrath because I have sinned. But He in His mercy and His grace has provided a Savior, His own Son, the sinless Son of God, taking upon Himself my form that He might bear my sin to the cross. He might bear the wrath of God, the transgression, that do it, my transgression before God the Father. That it might please, again Isaiah 53, it might please a holy God to crush Him in order to save me. And in, in, in the light of that truth, to repent of my sin, to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, and to be baptized. It's as simple as that. And we know no other gospel than that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this example of the Ethiopian eunuch once again showing us that in Christ there is truly no distinction.
not only between race and race, but even physical infirmities, physical disabilities, physical differences, whether they have been self-inflicted or inflicted by others, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the universality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but Father, we also thank you for the exclusiveness that we are indeed a called out people, that we are an assembly of God. We are the people of God through Jesus Christ. And Father, I earnestly pray that your spirit would be in work in each one of us, young and old, that if for any reason there be any here who do not know you through Jesus Christ, that they would hear the gospel of their sin and of their Savior, that they would repent and believe and be baptized. For your glory, Father, and indeed for their good and the good of the church of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, please rise for the benediction from the second letter of the Apostle Peter. This admonition that he writes, Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.